biggest challenge in lifecycle management is, is recognizing that we need three or more, but at least three very different minds in managing products at different stages of the life cycle. Product Growth Leaders proudly presents the Business of Product Topic of the Week, a podcast that explores product management and leadership topics through interactive conversations with our product leader panelists. Conversations that will challenge you to think about your thoughts on the topic and perhaps get you to change your mind. I am Grant Hunter, co-founder of Product Growth Leaders and the host and facilitator for these conversations. Listen, subscribe, and add your voice to the conversation every week in the Product Growth Leaders community. Welcome to Product Growth Leaders Topic of the Week. Uh, this week, we're talking about product lifecycle management. With me, I have Steve Johnson, uh, one of our, my co-founder. We got Rob Goldberg, one of our regular panelists. And for the first time this week, we have Lori Harvey. Lori Harvey is a longtime product professional uh, who does a lot of work with TopTal, the ta uh, top talent community. Uh, and so that's how I got to know her here. And this week, we're talking about product lifecycle management. So with that said, let's dig into the answers to our Monday questions. So the Monday question was, what dynamics and metrics are most valuable to consider when managing a product's lifecycle? Uh, our friend Jason Vincelet was back in being the informed being the first person to answer and unfortunately he couldn't join us today. What he said was it depends on the product and if the desired and what the desired outcome is from it. Revenue usage and adoption must be part of it expected versus actual adoption and adjusted per client, especially in the enterprise software industry. And adoption is not just logging in, but transactions and value of transactions measured over a period of time to account for anomalies and compare them against industry norms. Now, Jason works at a big enterprise software company. So some of those metrics are gonna be related to that. Uh, Lori was the second answer, but we're gonna actually give her her own page because we're gonna do a deep dive into metrics with that. Uh, I was the second one. The dynamics are the most important that are most important are the phase of maturity and life cycle the product is in and the market position, leader, challenger, follower. What I have found is that if you can track where you are in the market life cycle and where you are in the leadership stack, it actually helps give you very specific actions that you should be doing for product life cycle management, uh, whether it's creating a new curve, where you're focusing your revenue and those types of things. For metrics, I, I'm a huge fan of the trailing 12 month model, right? Looking at what's happening because that smooths out things. And I like net retention. Now I come from a typical subscription type business model and net retention is uh, your, you know, re renewed revenue plus new revenue divided by uh, start of the year or what was available for renewal. So this is actually how Gartner Group used to do their sales compensation back in the day. Uh, if somebody had a base of 100, they wanted them to get to 110. So they needed to renew and add new revenue to get to that 110. Uh, but a lot of subscription models, this is what I've seen. Uh, and the second thing I also look at was this, I did it more manually, you know, where are the new deals coming from? If we're getting new deals, are they competitive takebacks or are competitive takeaways or winbacks? Meaning they were already in the market doing it? Or are they net new people to the market? And that sort of helps me understand how much of the non-customers are available out there. Steve, I'd love to get your take on these first two approaches. 
Well, you know, it's a typical uh, Steve situation of tossing me a softball and I just swing and miss. Because uh, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the work that I've done recently. And uh, and and in particular, uh, you know, I, as, as Laurie pointed out a little earlier, uh, or maybe, well, one of you, a lot of the stuff that I really want to track, I need to track at the product level. And yet most companies don't track anything at the product level. So it's like, how much revenue did we make? Well, gosh, the company made this, but you know, who knows what your product made because it was all rolled into a big enterprise deal and, and nobody knows what the average selling price is. Uh, but uh, the other thing I was kind of jumping on was you were talking about leader, challenger, follower. Um, I've been applying my thinking about metrics to the three horizons because it's, it's, it completely, I think, changes the way we think about what we want to track. Um, if you're in horizon three and you're designing, you're determining what new markets to serve or what new products to build for existing markets, if you're doing the Ansoft matrix, then revenue is irrelevant because yeah. what we're doing in horizon three is learning. So it's like, I don't know, uh, completed customer interviews or um, uh, recommended uh, market product fit combinations, um, things that focus towards, you know, the metrics that would help quantify the future. Whereas if you're in the tornado, you know, you're like, all we care about is adoption. Let's adopt, grow, 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 adopt, adopt, adopt. And if you're dealing with horizon one, it's like, how do we reduce our cost of goods sold? Well, well, Steve, you knew you had me at Ansos matrix. Okay. Uh, yeah. But I actually, that I, as always, I get new things to thinking about, right? I've, uh, when managing product lifecycle, I often was thinking in the now phase, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're truly thinking of the three uh, phases, the three horizons, you really need to do have different ways you're looking at. And I think maybe one, and this is me leading one of the questions we'll have later on, you know, one of the biggest problems people have is they only think in the now, they don't think about the next and the future. Mm -hmm. And what are the right metrics for those types of things to be validating that type of stuff? Rob, right. I'd love to get your take on this. You're a front end guy. He's talking front end and next and now. Yeah, um, you know, so the, the dynamics along the path of the product life cycle is, is, is always hard to measure. You know, we've done pressure curves in the past to look at structural changes that are coming in the product, whether it's through margin erosion or, um, or revenue gain, you know, and some of the metrics that you talked about, you mentioned, uh, Grant, uh, you know, I think are, are key to that. But, you know, when you're in a, business, you know, now I think about the world a little differently because when you're in a business that is um, where, where you have a, you know, a large share of the market, you're, you know, I'm looking at the life cycle in terms of technology debt, which is mm -hmm. maybe, a, maybe a different spin on this. If I'm all of a sudden um, throwing off margin because I'm servicing debt in technology because, you know, because the next decision you know, in these inter interlocking um, S-shaped curves, I have to go and modernize a platform. All of a sudden, I'm at a, I'm at a, I might be at a maturity or a decline because of that, and may be ripe for disruption. So, you know, while you can, I think, you know, we tend to, we tend to look at things, and what you're talking about, you know, is really in the front end piece of this. But as as you go 
farther into the life cycle, it gets harder and harder. And I don't think the metrics that we use years ago, you know, years ago it was easy to a lot easier, I think, to create a product line PL. I can tell you it is extremely hard now to create product line PL, so Steve's point, and to get a really good read on some of that. So we're looking at other metrics that we collect, especially around, you know, our discretionary spend and trying to match that to the marketplace and where in, in what life cycle we are in the market. Are we in a mature stage or a, um, a growth stage still? Yeah, J- Jason had actually had a response to mine on the dynamics and net retention, talking about the ability to actually measure that type of stuff. And you know, it got me back to places where I was having to have allocation battles with, F- with the finance department, trying to b- figure out how do I allocate revenue when my product is thrown in as a gimme. <laughs> Right? right? And how do I allocate costs when they're putting, they aren't carrying my bag, but just broad, it, it, it's, it's hard to your point to do that. But yeah. metrics are key to doing this. And, and so I'm gonna get on this page, we're gonna get to Lori, uh, and, and more so Lori, the article Lori wrote, uh, uh, keep KPI. I specifically focus on the business ones. Uh, and business performance KPIs are key for product lifecycle management. These are the focus around customers, customer lifecycle value, bookings, revenues, costs, and profitability. For executives, these should drive investment decisions, lay foundation for additional headcount, have go, no-go decisions at the product level. Laura, I've got the list of things down here plus before. I'd love to have you sort of talk broadly about this before, you know, your 150 whatever KPIs <laughs> and how you got to, you know, at least these business ones. And, and our responses sort of were more than ones aligned to life cycle. So let, let's, let's get your take. Yeah. So, you know, when I think about life cycle, of course I go to the curve, right? Where you've got yep. a lot of investment up front here along this side and it takes a while to get momentum. You get the momentum and then there's always that sort of drop and you have to adjust, right? So if this is a model we're sort of looking at from the uh, product life cycle perspective, then I think the KPIs, KPIs change depending on where you are in that life cycle. Um, and, and you need to sort of look at- Did you read ahead into my questions, Lori? No. Did you read ahead into my questions? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it happens every week with somebody. They, they, they actually start talking about one of the future questions. Where are you going get... next? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you're, you've got, I know you've got to leave early. So let's, 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 let's get your take. Yeah, so my take is that um, I think uh, every business is going to focus on different KPIs. And, and you have to have an agreement about, you know, at the board, executive level, the CX level, as to what is important for the strategy of that company. So there's, there's going to be no hard and fast rule as to which are the ones that you're going to be reporting on. Obviously, revenues is one, margins are another, that's standard across the board. But when you start drilling down to the operational work of the product team, and how you're managing the team and what you're going to measuring them on and what you're setting their expectations for, I think that changes based on where you are in the life cycle. And you have to always look back at what should you be monitoring based on the strategy and the goals of the company. Just throwing that out. No, I, I think it's key. And the question we'll get to later is what, what aspects of product management. So it's a little different than the KPIs. Let's let's go through and I you know I used in the in the poll question inception, growth and I actually break up growth into early hyper growth, late stable growth, maturity and then decline. Talk to me about 
inception or product market fit, what would be a good KPI there? Yeah, again, goes back to the strategy, right? Um, so yeah. from a product market fit perspective, you really need to be uh, measuring opportunity against addressable market um, against uh, whether this is, you know, a revenue or a customer acquisition scenario, because as you said, yeah. uh, often you do that giveaway thing because of the synergy revenues that you're going to get from other products by adding a feature or function or capability that drives revenues, you know, across the street. Um, so uh, I, there's no hard answer. There really is yeah. not a hard answer. Okay. Let's talk about some of the most valuable KPIs. You listed revenue, bookings, funnel, retention, attrition, customer lifecycle value, velocity slash time to revenue, gross margins, net promoter and customer satisfaction. Which one do you think is the most used and which one do you think is most underused? Uh, I think, well, obviously revenue and margins are sort of the industry standard across, I think, all industries. But uh, my background's in telco and cyber. So I also lean to the whole CLV scenario, uh, the recurring revenue, which then turns into sort of the bookings and funnel uh, analysis. Yeah. Um, retention goes to attrition and, and uh, CLV. So they're very much tied together. You can you know, mix those numbers around and come up with the same kind of uh, analysis. NPS and customer satisfaction to me is very fluffy. Um, it's always subjective and not yeah. objective. Um, so while I know a lot of industries depend on those numbers, it's not something that as a PM I would depend upon. Of course, I'm going to be dealing with ticket management and the quality of the product, but from a much more objective than subjective perspective. I, I think the NPS is something that's gotten so out of whack because yeah. people now manage to it, right? And if I don't, it, you know, nine and 10 means you had a great service. So give me a nine or 10. I know and I'm probably more automated. Well, I, think, <laughs> I, I think a lot of these as a, as a, as a, um, as a metric get lost NPS and customer satisfaction as a number. It's, it's interesting. NPS and customer satisfaction as a process within an organization to drive customer service and to drive change management is you know the, the, those companies that have best practice around this actually integrate this into their business process um, when i was at pitney you know we had customer sat we had we used nps but we also had customer sat um, that went out after every sale that was made and that data would come back in and root itself and it was on my strategic strategic architecture and it was part of my bonus and guess what you know, being the corn operated little guy that I am, mm -hmm. if it was on my bonus and, and something came back that was negative, it, it funny how it found its way on the top of my to-do list for my team. Sure. So, you know, it's, it's like everything else. I was, I was listening to Lori and I was thinking, you know, a lot of the things that we do, when you look at like market sizing and Tam, Sam and Sam, you know, when you talk about, you know, when you talk about Sam, some might be a number, but it's also a capacity limitation that needs to be worked on. Yeah. And we, we look at metrics as just numbers and metrics tell a story. And I don't think a lot of organizations want to actually understand the numbers in a way to tell us that the story is laying out in order to make change within the organization. Yeah. 
I think the other one that, that may start cropping into this group would also be compliance um, related to regulatory security, privacy. Uh, I'm a cyber gal, so I'm, I'm very focused on making sure that both the environment and the data is properly managed to compliance levels that are required in whatever industry you're in. No, I, I think that's a key uh, uh, for any product to understand those types of things. Steve, do you have any thoughts on these metrics? I spent, uh, yeah, I'm looking at a lot of these, again, thinking toward things like uh, market product fit or market problem fit. Um, and one in particular that I've always been quite fascinated by is is really doing funnel metrics. You know, you get a thousand people in the funnel and, you know, by the time they get to the demo, it's whittled down to 10 people or something. And you just go, yeah. you know, where's the flaw? I mean, what happened here? And, and so the conversion rates tell you things that are really insightful. It's like you promised more than you delivered or or your promise isn't a very good one. You know, when 80% of the people who download it, use it and love it, then we've got a top of funnel problem with, you know, if people download it and never use it again, we have a bottom of the funnel problem. And I, I think I've always been fascinated by looking at conversion rates, uh, in particular, as it relates to, you know, have we actually got the right product or we just, uh, or we have the right product, but we're just not talking about it. Right. Steve, I don't, Long ago, I shared with you a, a model I used to use. It was a four blocker. Mine was there's some things are market, some things are product, some things are strategy, some things are execution. And so that had four blocks, Pro market strategy, who has the problem, what's the segmentation, you know, product strategy, that's your concept of how you're going to solve that, address that problem. Product mm -hmm. execution is translating that concept into a product and market execution is then the actual marketing and selling of it. And what I would tell people is, you tell me where the hole in your funnel is. If if your lead convert if if, if your <clears throat> reach and lead conversion on a marketing campaign is really bad, you've got a market strategy problem. You don't understand the segment or and you don't understand their problem. So you you hit people. You said how you could help them and nobody was interested because your your market strategy was bad. That being said, if you get good conversion there and it moves to the first call, and the first call we get a chance to tell them how we're going to help them. Concept right? Here's how we would help you. If you lose a lot, if, if their hole is there, it's a product strategy problem. Mm -hmm. They self-identified they have the problem, but then when we told them how we're going to help them, like, eh, right? You move past that to a demo or a trial. If they get a demo or a trial and then they fall off, you've got a product execution problem. You told me how you're going to help me. And I thought, oh, well, I, I'm interested. Then you showed me. And I'm like, eh, right? Mm -hmm. Then you move down to sales ex or market execution, which is a little is more about pricing and sales and that type of stuff. But it, it's a strategic way to look at that. And it makes sense for thinking about that in a product lifecycle because it helps you understand where those holes are. Yeah. I've got one, la one last question here. And this is a leading question for me. How important is doing a trailing 12 month or something that's a over time, over periods versus recent period? Well, I, I, think, it's, I think it's important. I mean, I use, we use pressure curves here. Okay. And so, because pressure curves actually have a, they can they can spot structural changes. So it's it's a trailing twelve over a trailing three, um, oh, and you can actually start to see the structural change in the market, um, because of, because you'll you'll get the, 
if the 12 is going up and the three is going up faster than the 12, it's going to start to pull the market up and you can start to see things happening. Um, and that just comes from my investment days as well. So I, it's the same methodology I use for my portfolio. Um, but I, I think it's really important, uh, you know, especially in a business like ours where conversion might be eight months. We'll get the sale and then we, we don't, we don't have revenue for eight months on that sale because conversion takes so long. So, you know, it's really important yeah. to see those trends. Yeah, yeah I'm a trend guy like, too. I, 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 it's like your speedometer is irrelevant, <laughs> right? Except you shouldn't be exceeding the speed limit. But when you add your odometer and your speedometer, now you're on something relevant. We now have a trend that says you're averaging you know, this many miles per hour. And so now you can start doing math. But if you just say, hey, I am currently going 72 miles an hour, you can't extrapolate that. I yeah. mean, that, that doesn't, I'm even taking into account being pulled over for speeding, but you can't sustain that 72. Yeah. So you've got to have it over, over time and average over time. Lori, your thoughts before we move forward. Yeah, I'm sort of, I, I'm, I'm trying to balance my product management versus my sales hat here. Because um, uh, time to market, but then the revenue that is sort of that sales responsibility. Uh, I, I think from a product management perspective, there's going to be different aspects you need to focus on. Because the time, the, the time to revenue also has a lot of marketing aspects that are not necessarily the responsibility of product management per se. Yeah. Um, so there's a bit of a crossover there. So what can you, you know, as a product management lead, what can you control versus as an overall business lead? Um, so time to market sort of says, you know, that's, that's when are you getting it into the market? So what's yep. the development cycle versus converting the, the sales funnel or, or closing those deals and onboarding which is a different function, I think. From so the, which, which goes back to the different phases of where you are in a product life cycle, what, different metrics to, to be going forward with. Yeah. So awesome. Well, I hope you can. All right, Lori, thank you so much for your time. We'll awesome. make sure we also promote the article again and we'll, we'll hopefully see you getting on here soon. Thanks. Ciao. Bye-bye. All right. The poll was what phase of product life cycle is the most difficult to manage? Uh, I obviously, I answered decline. Uh, and the reason I said decline is that I was debating between product market fit inception and decline. And, I, and the reality is if you're in decline, you're already trying to find product market fit, but you're also trying to manage the expectations of the business where you've got revenues going down. So it's not just, you're doing almost both at the same time. Does that make sense, Steve? Yeah, I'm just I'm using my my curious face because it would seem to me that decline would be the easiest to manage. The the I think the difficulty in in decline is managing executive expectations. They're like your product is in decline and it's time to shoot it, and they're like, oh my gosh, that's the product. That's our flagship product. That's the one that I personally invented. And you're like, come on, get the emotions out of here. The that, numbers tell me this. But that's that was the that. <laughs> yeah, that was that, that was my that was the reason for decline. And I looked at decline with that, and I looked at product mar market fit with all the hands-on work you have to do to figure out how to pivot and adjust and do whatever to get to it. And my view is, and maybe this is being putting my my thoughts on it, 
often if you're in decline, you need to be finding that next growth curve already. You missed so you're it. Almost it's dealing, too late. Yeah, it's too late. So you're having to deal with even in the rearview mirror, too late trying to get to it. So it was the, you know, the executive stuff with the also going, mm-hmm. oh shit, what do we do next? Yeah, I'm in the hospital with a heart attack going, I should eat better. <laughs> Sorry, dude, you missed it. You should have been doing that stuff 20 years ago. Yes. Yeah, but the reality, you know, in every client that I've ever had and in every company I've ever worked for, you know, the rationalization of product, it's, it's incredible how much money is spent on servicing old platforms and old products and maintaining customers on old systems. It's millions and millions of dollars that companies spend. And I've mm-hmm. worked on countless projects where we've gone in to rationalize the, uh, the product set. We just had a product where we had one customer and I mean, it should have been, the, the, the customer should have been you know, sent, sent on their merry way. The product should have been shut down. We were, the, the loss was, it wasn't even, you couldn't even, it was so low, the, the, the value of this product in the market and to this one customer and the losses that we were incurring on it were just incredible. And, yeah, it's like one divided was, by infinity. And nobody wanted to get a, nobody wanted to get rid of it. It was it was like you you we had a, you know you can't imagine what how much the money we spent in rationalizing why it shouldn't be in the portfolio. That alone should have been the reason to get rid of it. And I've seen this all along. I I chose decline because I think I think coming into a product, um, you can you can you know. It, I think you can fake the numbers enough to show product market fit and, and, and get somebody in, you know, to invest in your, in the education and, and, and of your child and, um, and bring your child to market. I think the other stages, there are clear deliverables around it, especially as you're growing, you know, you're going to be expanding and a lot of it is going to be technology and, and maybe other, other parts of the ecosystem that you're going to collapse for me. And it's always been this way. Um, to everything that we're talking about, you know, by the time you get to decline, you should be on the next product. And it's, it's, it's easier said than done where you, mm-hmm. where you, you um, go from platform to platform, excuse me, and migrate customers over, you know, there's a difference between extension and platform migration and mm-hmm. decline to me is platform migration. And that's a really, really tricky thing to do. And I've never seen a company at least in my experience, I've never seen the company do it well. Mm-hmm. Rob, have you heard me tell my Charles Handy second curve story? No. You know who Charles Handy is, the business yeah. guy from London School of Economics and Business? He tells a story about uh, being in Dublin and heading to the town of Avaca. Steve's heard the story from me like so, too many times this past month alone. And he's got lost in his car and he found a guy walking a dog and he stops the car and says, hey, I'm trying to get to Avaca. Can you help me? He goes, ah. Oh, it's right easy. Go up the hill, go down the hill, and you're going to come to a creek. Across the creek is a bar. It's Davy's Bar. Big red sign. You can't miss it. You got that? He goes, up the hill, down the hill, get to a creek, Davy's Bar. He goes, yeah, half a mile before you get there, turn right. <laughs> and, and the point is, when you're doing product lifecycle management, especially when you get to that maturity decline, too often we turn half a mile after we, sh- we, we, we don't we don't start thinking about where we should have turned until half mile, mile past where we should have. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And, and the part of the problem, part of the problem is theoretically, we always think about a normally distributed curve. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and, and, you know, Jeffrey Moore, you know, and everything else, just, you know, we think the, the every product follows that it's not, it doesn't follow that. And, and, and it never has followed that. And I think it throws people off because this product might, you know, product a will, will uh, perform in the market and grow and, and, and um, contract in the market different than product B, um, yep. you know, and so, and, and, you know, once you have these S-shaped curves and the F-shaped, the S-shaped curves will continue to get shorter and shorter, you know, as you start to, as we start to bring more and more digital products to market. And I don't think we think about that. We, we, we go from our experience. It took us five months to build it. And, you know, eight months before we started to get traction, we got a couple of key clients and we we tend to take that same bias and put it on it. And our expectations through forecasting of what it's going to do and performance measurement of what it's going to do is always wrong. And so we never go back and, and this, that learning loop is yeah. never, that knowledge loop is never there. And so we continue to make the same mistakes and you can see it in the way we bring products to market. And this is not just Broadridge, this is everywhere. How companies bring products to market, how companies forecast and the expectation of what they're going to have, how they manage through the product life cycle and how they, you know, and how they um, migrate their customers over time, even to the point where when a, when a product is about to decline, you know, the, the investment that you would make to modernize the platform to maintain the margin, we're thinking top line. So yeah. we, we, we want to force a top line revenue when I should be saying, hold it, this product is 90% of the market. We have the majority of the customers. We have to maintain our customers and we have to be able to deliver to the bottom line more and more penny profit. Isn't that the way it should be? I get to a certain point in life and, and everything, I should, my expenses are lower and everything should drop to the bottom line. But I can't because I got so much tech that I have to service and we don't plan for that. So it's not just a product going up and down. It's a product going up, maintaining the, the light, you know, it's like a body, maintaining your body at a, at a certain bad health condition. And now all of a sudden you got to put more and more money into maintaining your health. We need to think about that right from the beginning and, make, and change the platform. We need to do the, we need to service and, and eliminate the tech debt throughout the, 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 the life cycle so that by the time we get to maturity, it's all falling to the bottom line and we're not paying for things that we, mistakes we made back in, you know, 10 years ago. So one thing, I'm very good at keeping my state of health at a very bad level. So I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Second, I'm a, I have to feel like you're going through a whole bunch of tech debt debates at your company because you've like mentioned tech debt like five times already today. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> well, but, you know, everybody is, right? Um, and a, a, a well-known company whose name you would know, uh, they That's why they're acquired, a well-known company. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> they acquired three competitors. So now they have four products in the same category. And, of course, you know what it is, right? The strategy is offload three of those onto the flagship product, convert everybody over, but they forgot to, well, they didn't forget, but the salespeople didn't like that answer. So the salespeople continued to sell all four of the products. And so now they've gotten no benefit from the acquisition. Um, 
they've got uh, they're they're effectively running four companies all under one name and they're not getting any of the benefit of you know focusing all their energies on one product and to me that is that's a that's like a combination of technical debt and just a complete absence of leadership well, there's there's a reason why more than fifty percent of acquisitions fail, right? Indeed. Uh, and I thought the number you know, was much higher than that. I thought I read an HBR report that said effectively all acquisitions fail. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've seen you know I, I look at our friend Frank Tate and what he did with it, using build buy as a product strategy, right, and being mm-hmm. able to find components that aren't aren't competitors. Every time I've seen people buy competitors. It's never worked. I've because I've I've been there when we bought the low price competitor, and what happened? Somebody else emerged as a low price competitor, and all those people who had been paying for the low price went back to the low price because that was the segment they were in, the persona they were in. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did, well, did you go ahead, Rob? No, what were we going to say? Because I was going to I was going to actually comment on your why things fail. But were you going to ask a question? I was going to ask Steve which if he had voted or if he hadn't, which one would he vote for? Well, I had voted for Inception, you know, I uh, okay. and it was it ties back to uh, you know, what I was saying earlier. The the metrics we play with are all about the now revenue, uh, profitability, you know, cost. And none of those are known when you're in the in- Inception phase. I mean, as I, I think I may have already said, we should be, you know, tracking things like experiments and interviews and customer engagement. Um, but there's no traditional metrics around that, that, you know, management would buy off on. I mean, if you said, I'm going to pay a bonus to my guy here, uh, my, my new product manager is going to do, you know, experiments and we're going to pay him for the experiment. Everybody would say, well, wait, you know, what about revenue? And you're like, well, wrong thing. And, and, you know, this, this goes way back to my first product management job. We had no real voice of the customer at all. And my boss said, you know what, I'm going to pay you a bonus to make 12 calls a quarter. And he ran into great deal of friction from his boss saying, you know, well, there's no, uh, paying people for visiting people isn't, you know, isn't revenue. And, and he's like, the, the, the issue we're having is not this year's revenue, but next year's revenue. See, but that's a place where you know, we have a short-term mentality. Yes. Yeah. You oh, can't, yeah. I can't vote, you know, I can only bonus you within a, within the fiscal year. Right. And that's part of the, you know, so it's great if it's part of next year's bonus structure, but I can only bonus you on what you're doing in this fiscal year. Next year, there might not be a bonus. Right. 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 And yet the only thing they, the, the issue this company had, of course, is they were completely sales driven. And so everything was in the context of uh, revenue. And what happened with the other product managers who were being paid a bonus on revenue is they all became sales engineers. Yeah. Sales guy would call and say, were, man, I've got so- a big deal. Can you come hey, help me out? And you're like, hell yeah, I'm there because my bonus is contingent upon you closing big deals. Right. Yeah. So you, get, you, you, you get what you pay for. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, coin, coin operated, right? And have, have you guys read The Four Zones by Jeffrey Moore? Mm-hmm. Zone so, to win. Zone to win. He talks about the four oh, yeah. zones. That, to me, that helps with that because inception, that getting the product market fit, those experiments happen in the incubator zone. 
mm-hmm. right? Some of them, once they've moved into more maturity and the growth and that sort of stuff can move up into the operating zone. Uh, but then you've got the transformation zone. So it actually, you know, trying to give different P&Ls with different results, looking for it. It's an interesting way to look at how you could do it. Uh, you were going to say about acquisitions. Well, I was going to, I wanted to make two comments. One is, you know, when you look at development spend, you know, for the most part, most companies follow what Gartner went down, which was the run, grow, transform. And you look yep. at that, that run piece of somebody's budget, that non-discretionary spend can be 50%. It's probably close to 50% across industries. You know, we started breaking out run, we have product run, tech run, we have grow EBIT, grow revenue. Same map to the RGT, but what we're able to see now is how much of it is truly tech debt versus product coming in, doing some type of enhancement or, or some type of efficiency. And then we started going back and saying, look, you know, you're asking, you're going to do a modernization or some type of EBIT growth. How much? And now we're trying to figure out how to, because it's, it's a long tail on EBIT growth. But I think yeah. that's part of the problem. And what I wanted to say about acquisition is acquisitions fail because of lack of synergy. It looks good on paper. They can't tell the story to the marketplace. You know, I've, I've seen very few, you know, even at Broadridge, which is by far one of the best companies to acquire and, 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 um, and bring into, a, you know, and to actually bring into the company and, and, uh, and get the, the acquisition aligned into the company. It's, it's a separate, it's always a separate business unit. You know, and it takes a long time competing platforms. Things are not plug and play. You know, the world is not a plug and play world and APIs. So, you know, you need API strategies. You need all that migrating customers. We have one division now where we have four, four or five platforms that do the same thing. We're trying to rationalize, you know, you, so, you know, um, acquisitions fail because the promise of synergy just has never, I've just never seen it. Mm-hmm. And, and we just don't know how to invest in a way to, to make, you know, to, to eliminate those, those lack of synergies that bring the technology, but we also don't tell a coherent story to the marketplace. And the market is confused about what, you know, what we're, what we're trying to bring to them and the value of it. Well, you know, everything seems easy at the PowerPoint level. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. I love that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that said, let's move into the first open-ended question we have. What is the biggest challenge with product lifecycle management? I'm Go to Ron first. Rob, <laughs> Rob, what do you say? I was just going to say, uh, you know, it's got to be, be lack of data and, and truly what, how you measure what stage you're at, I, I think is, uh, I think if the data was there and we were clear about the, you know, what, what maturity actually means. I don't know if we properly as a, we have properly defined every stage. It's different for every product in every company, but I, I truly believe if I was to say to somebody inside Broadridge today, is this what stage of growth this product is? We use horizons. What, mm-hmm. what, what horizon this is in. I think you'd have three different, we have three horizons. I think you have three different answers. Email maybe two because nobody would think it's in the early stage. Interesting. So I would have to say definitions and, and data. Well, but isn't, aren't those four stages defined by the rate of change? I mean, when you're, you know, less than 45 degrees and then you become more than 45 degrees, you've hit the hockey stick. So you're now in the growth phase. And then when you go from 
less than 45 degrees to more than 45 degrees, then you're in the uh, stability, the, the mature phase. Yeah, but it's more of a, but, but that's, I mean, that's products typically work in a stepwise function. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very hard to determine where you are with, you're never in a hockey stick, you're in a step and, you know, so you're going up and, and oh, good point. plateauing up and plateauing. And so I think, I think definitionally, I, you know, it's just, you know, it looks good on paper. You know, I'm going to use everything. It looks good on PowerPoint, but reality <laughs> is, you know, you know, reality is we sell, we plateau, we sell, we plateau, we go down a little, we sell, we plateau. The new <laughs> entrant comes in the market. We, which is, which is why a trailing 12 months. And I love the, your, you know, the three months over 12 months uh, as a way to do that. Something Steve and I has talked, I've talked about before is that even a product, an S curve is really made up of a whole bunch of small S curves. Right. Mm-hmm. And right. so that's sort of stepwise. And if you, if you talk, if you're doing a good job of segmenting and subsegmenting your market, you're, you're driving that, right? Okay. Here's the next one we're going to, and you're, you're continually getting that second curve to start half mile before you get to the Creek. Uh, and, and it can get you smooth, but to your, the reality is it always changes, you know, each subsegment is going to adopt a little differently. You're going to have to change, change your language there. Uh, but I love the, I love the con, I, you know, the step is the exactly more than that versus the smooth Steve, yeah. your, 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 your take on this. Well, you know, um, when in doubt, I always go back to roles and it occurred to me only later in life that. Every product management job I had was for a product in a different part of the life cycle. And so one company, I needed business skills. And in another company, I needed technical skills. And in my first product management job, I really needed sales and marketing skills. And so to me, the biggest challenge in life cycle management is is recognizing that we need three or more, but at least three very different minds in managing products at different stages of the life cycle. And so, you know, I came in with a sales and marketing background and my, my first job, it was great. My second job, they threw me into a PO role, a product owner role. And suddenly I'm nerding out with the nerds and the nerdordium, you know, and I'm like, I can't even have conversations with you guys because, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Star Wars guy, not a Star Trek guy. You know? yeah. <laughs> No, I, it, 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 it is true. Cause I'm thinking about, I've often been that mature decline person who has to figure out the next curve. Uh, doing that is different than being the person helping drive growth and how, how do you do it there? Uh, yeah, I, I think, I think it's really fascinating to think about product life cycle reflected in the role of a person. I mean, that is, I'm, I'm just thinking about what, you know, you're either, you're either launching and thinking, you know, and, and, evaluating the market and doing discovery or you're spending all your time with technology because you're, you're maintaining, you know, the product and, and, and it's a more technology job versus, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or you're, you know, or you're, you know, you're trying, we don't really have anything in the, we don't really have people that think the back end of this, but, or, you, or there'd be somebody at the, at the life cycle stage with the grants roles where you're thinking about what's, what's next. Mm-hmm. Never thought about it that way. And it's really fascinating to, to put that spin on it. Well, this is, this is something that's obsessed me over the last few years is that we've got this one title, product manager. And it means 165 different things depending on what company you're in, right? And I've had that title three times. And I've had 
extremely different expectations in all, all three times. And I, I think it does ultimately translate to now, next, and future. You know, the now job, if your product is, is in the now, if you're responsible for, you know, increasing the now, that means you're, you're a growth guy. It means you need to be doing sales and marketing stuff. If you're in the next mode, you know, what, focusing on what's going to be in the next release, you need to be technical. And if you're thinking about the future, you need to really be systematic and, and well, a business person. And I know business is where Grant is strong, and I'm, I tend to be stronger in sales and marketing. Um, although I have learned to be strong in working with technology, and I love working with developers. I've gotten fairly irritated with everyone else, but I love developers now. And those are, you know, very different mindsets. So that's something for you to take back to the office, Rob. You know, uh, do we have the, the, we've got the right people. The question is whether we're asking them to wear the right hat. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think it's really important. It, it's, it's, I, I completely agree, Steve. My, uh, w- when I wrote this question, my, my first thought was, was sort of that we judge, we, we look at products in the rearview mirror, not mm-hmm. the, not the front window and too often the way that companies manage life cycles is in a rearview mirror, which is sort of goes to that, you know, turn half mile before you get there type stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, then Rob, you, you got to be starting to think about technical debt and how the decisions you make earlier in the life cycle can have a major impact on the decisions that you have to make at the later stage of the life cycle. You talk about, getting to that place where you're the dominant market share yet. Do you have all this technical debt you have to reinvest in instead of dropping that stuff down? Uh, and all of a sudden technical debt started coming up in my head as one of the biggest challenges with the life cycle, because it's the trade-offs you make early that cost you later. Mm-hmm. Right. And furthermore, the reason tech debt is so, so bad and so systemic is it's below the line, right? I mean, nobody says, hey, I, I, we really need to reinvest in the architecture to increase sales. There's always going to be a new feature request, a new something about, you know, in the visible specter. And, you know, my analogy is I want to replace my carpet, but my roof leaks. And re- who wants to replace their roof? I mean, that's no fun. I want to replace the carpet and maybe I'll do that right before I sell the house. Right. But if I live here much longer, I think I'm going to have to repair that roof and nobody wants to pay for that. And that's the, I think the real challenge we have with tech debt inside a company, nobody in the executive ranks, except perhaps the VP of development wants to pay for it. Well, nobody knows how much it is, how much it's costing. And I can tell you, you know, based on all the studies that I've seen and I've had extensive conversations with Gartner about this, it's it's 50%. So you take companies that have hundreds of millions of dollars that they spend in technology development, you know, and, and half is going half to tech debt. Going to going to run, you know, to that run and you know it's 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 mind boggling. It is mind boggling. And those are and those are steady state projects versus priority projects, which means that you're it's underneath the radar. There's no yeah. ticket mm-hmm. open. It's it's you your, know, less than 200 hours. Your salespeople aren't going. Oh God, a new thing I can sell. It's it's just keeping the thing the thing that they already sold going. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I I I could make an argument, and maybe this is a whole different topic. That the problem with technical debt is the name, right? 
Steve, you use the analogy, and I, I, I've written a blog on this, right? The guy that, you know, a whole bunch of houses sold in their neighborhood this year because of the, you know, COVID and everything else. But if you, if you look at what, how quickly houses sell and for what prices they sell, all of it's based on the technical debt, the roof, the driveway, the gutters, the siding, you know, the kitchen, right? If you haven't updated your kitchen, it's a concept everybody, a lot of people struggle with tech debt, but it's a concept that you can take to that, your roof versus your carpet versus your driveway versus your gutters versus your kitchen, right? Well, because of the measurable economic loss and, and yeah. it came out of the M&A world when you were going to acquire a company and you and you were doing a code evaluation and you would look at the code and say, holy shit, there's a ton of debt that's on this code because it's it's out of, you know, it's out of whatever, out of sync with yeah. And I, th I think it's the, I, I think it's, you know, trust me, development people don't like to hear it because it means that something's wrong with the architecture, but because the architecture is not scalable yeah. or, or modernized. But I think it's the best way to describe it because from a product management standpoint, I have to, you know, I have to do this before I can do that. that. And, and yeah. it's the, that that's going to make me more money. Mm -hmm. No, I get it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the origin of it is it was actually, I think, a reference back to credit cards. You know, at some point you're in so much financial debt that all you're doing is paying debt on the debt. You know, you're yeah. you're you're luckily, you know, to try and you're, you're never paying down the principal. You're just paying off the credit card, uh, the you know, the minimum. Yeah, right. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And I think that's why whoever created this this metaphor chose the word debt, which I think is actually quite accurate. I mean, you see, you know, these kids coming out of college with $150,000 worth of economic debt, financial yeah. debt, and you go, you know, let's do some math on the back of a napkin here. It will take the rest of your life to pay off that debt unless, you know, one of us dies and leaves you a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, people don't want to hear that, but it's, it's, you know, a similar reality. Yeah, it's interesting because the other place I was going was thinking of going this was what Rob talked about with the S curves and how every S curve is different for every market. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of stuff there. Steve, you actually read ahead, didn't you? No, because this was your. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh well, hey, you know, um, we'll just rewind, cut that out, <laughs> stick that here. Uh, you know, absolutely. I, I, uh, I have worked with people like you who are strong business heads who are good on the front end and maybe on the back end. And I, I, my background is primarily sales and marketing. I'm really good at the now phase, the, the hyper growth phase. I've worked with really good technical people who are better at the steady state and, you know, maintaining the health of a product over time, which, which I have little patience with. Um, so I think, you know, between the three of us, we're probably almost one good product manager. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What do you think of, I mean, we, we talked about it before when we we're talking about the, the, the roles, the three roles, you know, what's your take on how does product management need to change as it moves through the life cycle? I, I am now thinking the way Steve's thinking is that <laughs> we need to have roles. You know, we just went through this role mandate thing um, at the office and, you know, we're assuming the assumption we're making is that a product manager should be able to handle the life cycle of a product. And yeah, and that's always, the premise I reject. 
Yeah, and I and I agree with you. And I've I've always said we're going through this. I I said you know that you have product managers that are working on mature architectures that's going to be different than a product manager that's working on something that's you know relatively new to the market and growing. But we we sort of said product manager. Here's your mm-hmm. thing. I I you know I, I I like the way you put it, Steve, and it reinforces some of the things that I was thinking earlier when we were going through our um, role mandates. And I think that's right. I think the, I think that if you're going, if you're, if I had, if I had my way and I could structure the organization, I probably would structure it differently. You said it yesterday on our call where, you, where, you know, you have product marketing serves a role, there's product strategy, there's a growth person, you know, there's that, that sales engineer, or we call it a product specialist that actually interacts with the, with the sales organization. And then you got this, this guy somewhere in the middle called the product manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know of any company that breaks it down like that, that all that much, but it's a well, you know what it is. That. It's the equivalent of doctor. Product manager is the equivalent of doctor. You're like, I need to go to a doctor. I call 1-800-THE-DOCTOR and say, I need some help, doctor. And they go, well, wait, you know, hang on. What, what is your issue? You know, um, is it your left ear or your right ear? Because we need to send you to the appropriate specialist, right? Um, so there's a thousand different specialties within medical, right? Within doctor. Uh, and yet, yeah, I mean, so it's almost like product manager is now like a salutation. You know, we need to call you, you know, product manager Johnson, you know, and what is your specialty? Well, I'm an internist, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm a growth guy. I'm a, a, a technical <laughs> you know, it's, guy. It, it's interesting you say that because I always, I would always say if somebody said, you know, I'd say I'm in product management, but I would always say my specialty is new products. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not the guy you call if you have something that's, that's aging and, you know, I'm, the front end innovation, bring it to market guy. You know, I want to, I want to birth it. I want to have all the fun getting pregnant and birthing the thing. And then I want to give it off to the adopted parents to raise. Right. So, so, so you're so, an obstetrician. <laughs> and I'm a gerontologist. Or an undertaker. <laughs> well, but the thing is, Rob, you know, we laugh about that, but you see, job descriptions, you know, for, for positions, you know, sometimes it's just a product manager, but sometimes it's a experience taking new products, right, to market. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes the ones I always tended to get were the, you know, turnaround ones, right? Mm-hmm. But Which reality, makes sense given your, your skill set. Yeah, but given, you know, it's a circle. My turnaround stuff, nine times out of 10, was launching a new product. Mm-hmm. Now, right, right. launching a new product from a base, so you already have it. I mean, this, this is where you get back to Ansofts, right? That's why I'm such a lover of Ansofts is my job was always to figure out, okay, yes, market penetration is full. Okay, what are our options? And the mm-hmm. options were always- New I markets never did, or new products. I never did diversification or, or end of life, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's lived, it's either, we're, either we're five miles past where we should have turned and it's too late. Or, you know, the need has gone away, right? And needs change and emerge. And that's why the, every S-curve is different, right? 
if BlackBerry's S curve was, you know, they didn't take in consideration 2007 in the iPhone, right? They thought they were still in the growth portion, but factors outside of their, well, you could argue outside of their control or not, because I know that they talk to the carriers, not the customers. Uh, but, you know, there's a time where you see them ask for specialty if it's front end or back end. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and you know, think one more rant. Uh, we do the same thing with salespeople. You know, is this guy a hunter or a gatherer? Yeah. Right. right. Um, and you're like, how? So anyway, I, I, that's a good way to finish up. I think the big challenge of, of product management is that product management means so many different things and we ought to have maybe new titles or at least specialty areas um, as we mature the profession. I, I'm, I love that idea. The final question, we're going to do a rapid fire. For a new product manager, what would your best advice be to help them manage the life cycle of the product? Rob? Uh, collect data, ask lots of questions. Okay. Steve? Yeah, I'm going to have to repeat uh, uh, ditto there, Rob. But, you know, in, in certainly in every new role I've had, I really have done that. I've gone to sales. I've gone to marketing. I've gone to development. I've gone to support. And in every case, I've said, you know, I want to do well here. You know, <laughs> not like my last job. Uh, no, I want to do well here. You know, what do you need? And in general, always what they end up saying is I need to know personas and their problems. Um, so uh, ultimately, I guess my insight always ends up being go visit a dozen customers before you start making decisions. God damn it, Steve. You, you were going down a whole path. I'm like, all right, I got to go talk to customers. And then you just brought that right in at the end because that's mine. It's, it's sorry, six, six to, you know, six to 10. Go talk yeah. to six to 10 customers and you will learn more about where you are in your life cycle than all the data combined. Yeah, I, I will throw one more thing is that I, then I got to jump off. But um, we, you know, I'm just thinking about this. Some Steve said just triggered this. It, as products mature, you have more and more must-have features. And so you get more and more table stakes. We just started using Cano to actually help look at our, our prioritization. And you really can see a lot of our features have, have moved into that indifferent stage. As mm -hmm. you go from, you know, that, that wow, attractive to must-have to indifference, the, the market, you might not be in a mature market, but the product is maturing and, mm -hmm. and, and that's going to put stress on price and put stress on other parts of the, uh, the ecosystem that you play in. And, and that's another thing that uh, I think we need to take into account. Especially understanding. So you don't, as too often I see people prioritizing new features which are, are now indifferent, which weren't indifferent a year ago. Mm. Yeah. Right. Indeed. So, Rob, All right, thank kids. you so much. Thanks guys. Have as, a great weekend. As, as we always say, Monday, the question comes out. Wednesday, the poll on Fridays. Join us on the call. So thank you guys so much. Have a great weekend. So long. Bye -bye. Thanks for listening to the Business of Product Topic of the Week brought to you by Product Growth Leaders. If you haven't yet, go to your Apple, Android, or favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next week for another episode. And for more great content and to participate in the Topic of the Week conversation, go to community.productgrowthleaders.com and join the conversation.